All right. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is John Mark Young. I'm the uh, president of Whitaker Myers Wealth Managers, and very happy to have everybody on the call with us today. This is uh, one of our week monthly webinar series that we do for our clients. Uh, every month, we try to take a topic related to something around your personal balance sheet, dive into it a little bit deeper. Last month was on taxes. Uh, this month is on real estate, and next month will be on uh, one, one of our investment strategies we, we utilize. But today, it's going to be about real estate. Now, if you know Whitaker Myers, you know we love and we respect our friend and, frankly, a strong business partner to our firm, Dave Ramsey, and the whole team at Ramsey Solutions. And when you listen to Dave on the radio or if you get a chance to chat with him one-on-one, he'll, he'll tell you his investment portfolio, how he invests his money, is very simple. It's funds with good, long, consistent track records that hit four basic categories. And, of course, if, you know you probably know those four categories if you listen to us for any length of time, which are growth-oriented investments like Tesla, Facebook, Google, NVIDIA, growth and income or dividend-oriented investments like Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Verizon, Chevron. He puts 25% of his portfolio in aggressive growth or smaller companies or mid-sized companies like Chipotle, Palo Alto Networks, or a small little bank we have in Ohio. It's probably traded called Wayne Savings. And finally, he puts 25% of his money in international stocks, which, of course, are stocks in countries places like Europe, Asia, South America, all over. But then he always adds to that statement, the other thing he invests in is real estate, paid for real estate. So funds in those four quadrants in real estate are the two things that Dave Ramsey puts his dollars into. And that's because Dave, from a real estate perspective, understands the power of an asset and an asset class that appreciates over time, that goes, goes up, although not in a straight line, but generally, if it's a good investment, will go up and generates a good amount of current income. It's the multiplier effect on compound interest, growth and income. The opportunity within real estate is massive as well. As a matter of fact, many people don't know this, but commercial real estate is actually the third largest asset class after stocks, which is the largest in, in, or in fixed income, the, the one and two, the equity markets and the fixed income market. Yet, it's the most underheld asset class from a client's perspective. Of course, we all have our homes that we live in, and that's generally part of our balance sheet. Uh, but commercial real estate is not part of our balance sheet typically, and it's the third largest asset class. And, and this is an investment that it's not without risk, but when you can generate income for a retiree and capital appreciation for a younger investor, all while providing a good hedge against inflation, and, and one only needs to look to 2022 to see evidence for that if you want a recent uh, bias to, to that. Uh, it's a great asset class. But, of course, as with any asset class, having the right partner that can make sure that you're in the right sectors of that real estate market, that's key. That's, that's a very appropriate way of doing it. And this is why we're glad to have Pat Doherty of Investco Real Estate on the call with us today. Because he's not only going to take us through the state of the real estate market, but he's going to be here to answer any questions you have about strategically what parts of the real estate market do you think you want to be in. Now, why Pat is the perfect person to have us join the call today is he has the gift of success and longevity. The two 
you know, that, uh, you know, luck is just preparation meeting opportunity. And, and Pat's been lucky in his career, but it's because he's been prepared and he's had the opportunity. He began his investment career in 1993, and he joined uh, Invesco Real Estate in 2020. Uh, prior to Invesco, he was the Senior Vice President and Regional Marketing Director for a JLL and the JLL Income Property Trust, which is a, uh, a perpetual life private REIT, uh, much like uh, we offer through, through Invesco. And prior to JLL, he was with American Century Investments and Oppenheimer Funds, one of my favorite fund companies before they were inquired by uh, Invesco uh, there. And Pat got his Bachelor of Science in Business degree from Farley Dickinson University so he was the major uh, purveyor of uh, their success last year in the NCAA tournament because uh, he was rooting as hard as he could root for their uh, their Cinderella story that they had in the NCAA tournament, which, of course, we, uh, if we were in Ohio, we got to watch a couple of those games uh, as they played in the Ohio um, uh, brackets uh, there. So we're very happy to have Pat Pattis to where Dave has, his wonderful son-in-law, Winston, that helps Dave make a lot of great real estate investment decisions. Winston runs Dave's real estate portfolio. We have people like Pat Doctor to help us make the most of our real estate investment opportunities. So I'm very excited to pass it over to you, Pat, and have you take us through what's going on in the real estate market, where the opportunity set lies, and, and how we can all take advantage of that. Well, great. Uh, thanks, John, Mark. Uh, really appreciate the comments. Uh, you can just give me a quick thumbs up before I get started. Uh, make sure I'm not just talking to myself. Uh, good sound check. Is everything good? Okay, good. And uh, wow, just out of the blue, the Fairleigh Dickinson comments. I uh, was not expecting that. I think you and me the only, and everybody uh, from Fairleigh Dickinson are the only people that remember that. But uh, it was uh, it was certainly a lot of fun and unexpected, and uh, we all had a we all had a great time with it. So um, uh, certainly certainly appreciate that. Um, what I'm going to do for the group, if uh, if it's okay, is I'm going to um, I'm going to share a couple things with you just for visual purposes. Um, oh, doesn't seem to be. Oh, there we go. All right. Hopefully, uh, everyone can see that um, there. Um, so, you know, John Mark in his introduction, you know, talk about a little bit of this, and I think for the purposes of today's, you know, talk, I think it's important to draw a distinction. Um, one is, you know, what type of real estate we're talking about, and I usually break it up into two camps. Um, there's uh, consumption real estate, or people call it residential real estate. That's the resident. That's the uh, real estate that everyone. Uh, lives in, um, and it also costs you a lot of money. Uh, for any of you that are homeowners on the line, I uh, think you would all certainly agree with me, as I am here in the Philadelphia area. Um, and then there's investment real estate, and that's the real estate that you invest in, and it pays you money. And that's the um, that's the type of real estate that we're going to be talking about today. Um, uh, happy to you know have questions and get anybody's thoughts at the end. Uh, on either, but um, for for the purposes of today, we'll be focusing on that. And John Mark alluded to some of this, you know, in his introduction, and I appreciate that. But just to drive the point home, um, you know, commercial real estate is a very large asset class. It is a massive asset class. In fact, uh, everyone on this call creates demand for commercial real estate every single day, whether we realize it or not. Um, you know, the way we position this is. You know, the commercial real estate market, if you capitalized it, is half the size of the stock market. And, I, you know, you know, I always 
go back a little bit and I say, why are we even talking about this in the first place? And, you know, our history, as you'll hear in just a second, is with large scale institutions that have been, you know, heavy investors in real estate. And I think that's, you know, impressive to talk about at cocktail parties and things like that. But the real question is not so much that they invest in real estate. I always ask the question why they do it, because I think the reasons they do it are no different than the reasons that uh, people on this call would want to consider the same. Um, there's a couple of reasons why we haven't been able to, I'll address that. But, you know, you know, institutions look at real estate and given the size of the market, uh, they would never put a zero weighting on an asset class of this size. It would be the same as putting a zero weighting on stocks or bonds, they would never do it. Um, but besides, you know, having sort of US market cap representation, um, you know, there's also, a massive amount of under ownership. Also, as John Mark uh, had mentioned, and this is just putting some numbers to it, you know, the average uh, public pension in the market today. So think of, you know, um, you know, Ohio teachers um, or CalPERS or CalSTRS or Texas teachers, all the largest uh, pensions in the United States uh, have anywhere, uh, depending on when you look, of a 10 to 14% weighting of their portfolio in uh, commercial real estate. And you can see on down the list uh, and you go down to the individual investor where they're woefully underrepresented here. Um, and I think the reason for that is, as I mentioned, I was going to mention it earlier, is number one, uh, it's not that invest individual investors were ignoring this or they didn't know that it was a benefit. Um, access to these type of vehicles have, I'll call it recently, become available for individuals because of, number one, some technological changes, mostly around pricing real estate. Um, but also some regulatory changes uh, took place within the last decade that allowed companies like Invesco and others uh, to enter the market um, and make our sort of expertise available to uh, to individual clients. So this is, I call it a relatively new phenomenon for individual investors. Um, they've been a little slow to adapt, uh, but I think that's uh, starting to change and it's starting to change uh, fairly rapidly. Um, another reason why um, institutions have been investing in real estate, uh, this is a big one. Um, you know, if you had the conversation about inflation uh, a few years ago, uh, people would have looked at you and said, you know, what inflation? There wasn't any. Uh, but of course, inflation has become an ugly topic over the past couple of years. It's caused some real problems. But if you think about real estate, in particular, commercial real estate, whether it's an individual who's renting an apartment in a large multi-family uh, complex, or if it's a company that's, um, you know, occupying a warehouse or an office building, um, typically those people have leases that range anywhere from three, five, seven on up to 20 years. Um, and the way those lease contracts are built is they typically have annual step ups in their rent payments and they're usually tied to inflation. So uh, depending on when you look, uh, those rent escalations um, that are contractual within the lease range anywhere from call it two to 4% or so. And as a result, the income uh, that John Mark, you know, alluded to um, that uh, is, um, you know, that uh, resides from this uh, actually grows over time. Uh, and that's really important. If you're planning for, if you have a, you know, a group of pensioners that are uh, going to retire soon and they need income and they need income themselves, that keeps pace with inflation. Um, starting with real estate uh, is a good idea in most people's opinion. Um, now, here's a benefit that, um the institutions don't necessarily have that all of you might have uh, if you were to engage in a strategy like ours or others is not only is the income fairly consistent, 
um, and it grows over time, there's also some tax efficiency benefits to it. Um, and, you know, there's the old saying, it's not uh, what you earn, it's what you keep. Um, well, because structures like ours are structured as real estate investment trust or REITs, um, there, uh, there's some inherent tax efficiency benefits uh, to them. Uh, number one, uh, because we own the buildings directly, and I think um, now is probably a good time to draw that distinction, um, accessing real estate investment trusts, you can do it a couple different ways. Um, you can do that uh, through uh, publicly traded investments like ETFs, like uh, the VNQ would be a good example of that, uh, Vanguard's ETF, um, or uh, mutual funds would be another example. Uh, say, for example, one of Invesco's uh, publicly traded uh, mutual fund investments, or you can invest privately through vehicles like uh, INRI, like the one we're talking about here today. And the big difference is, is we're all structured the same. We're all REITs, we're all real estate investments trusts. We're all public companies. Um, the difference is, is how our shares are made available to the public. Um, you can do it through a one of the exchanges or you can do it uh, privately like, um, you know, like we do with our investment in, uh, called INRI. So the reason why we are tax efficient is number one, we own the buildings directly. So we don't own shares of stock necessarily. We own the actual property. And as such, uh, we're able to uh, utilize something called depreciation. Uh, another way to call that is uh, another word for that is losses. Uh, we get to take losses on our properties each and every year, and we get to write that off against the income we're collecting through rent. And to the degree that we're able to do that, a portion of our income shows up on 1099 statements as something called return of capital. Um, it's also called non-dividend distribution. Um, so whatever portion of our income is considered non-dividend distribution, um, our shareholders don't pay any taxes on that their investment as long as they own the fund. Now, someday when they sell shares, uh, they will pay taxes. So to be clear, uh, this is not a, this is not tax free. It is tax deferred. However, uh, if you hold it for a couple of years. Um, you'll pay uh, at the uh, capital gains rate as opposed to ordinary income. Uh, so at the very worst, what we're able to do is we're able to convert what someone would normally pay in ordinary income into long-term capital gains sometime uh, down the road that the shareholder fully controls. Uh, no one's forcing them to sell their shares. Um, and uh, you can sell one share, two shares, 10 shares, or all of them uh, at your discretion, giving you more control of your tax liability of those assets. Um, the last part of that is if you never sell your shares, if you were to you know, buy shares of a REIT like ours and hold it till death, that step up in tax basis actually goes to your beneficiaries. So it's a great way for you to uh, diversify away from the volatile public markets, collect a, a pretty darn good income stream that's tax efficient while you're here. And when you pass away, you pass along the asset and the step up in tax basis to your beneficiaries. So I don't think REITs get enough credit for how tax efficient they actually are. So for example, in our fund, our distribution rate was call it by the end of the year in the five and a half range. And what that means for someone in the top tax bracket at 100% return of capital, which it looks like will be uh, somewhere around there, uh, you would have to have a taxable fixed income instrument somewhere uh, you know, with a coupon somewhere in the 9% range uh, to match what we're providing on an after-tax basis here within REIT. So um, I always encourage people to consider that when they're considering investment. It's really about you know, what, you know, what really goes in your pocket at the end of the day. Um, you know, so uh, none of this matters if, um, you know, if you can't work with a company that doesn't have some experience in doing this. 
Um, but, you know, I'm not putting this slide up here for the purposes of commercial. Uh, it does provide some context into the rest of the conversation. We're, we're going to talk about real estate fundamentals and what's, you know, what's going on out there. Um, but uh, Invesco Real Estate, which is the company that I work for, has been doing this for a very long time. We've amassed now it's close to 100 billion in total assets under management, just invested in real estate alone. Uh, we have over 600 employees at our firm that do nothing but real estate across the globe. And we have, uh, you know, uh, 21, uh, we have 16 offices, um, I'm sorry, 21 offices in 16 different countries. Um, and it really does cover the spectrum. So we cover real estate equity, real estate debt, listed securities as well. And it gives us a real lens into what's happening out there in the market. But I thought what I would do is I would spend some time on this because, you know, after all, today's conversation is supposed to be about real estate and fundamentals. And I think it's important to know, um, you know, about what is going on out there in the real estate market. Because I promise you this, uh, if you were to Google uh, commercial real estate, I am positive you would find some negative articles out there um, that uh, talk about how bad things have been given rising rates and so on and so forth. But I also promise you this, um, if you utter the words commercial real estate, the first thing that comes to everyone's mind is, of course, office buildings. Um, it also means uh, retail in a lot of ways or retail malls. Uh, but the uh, commercial real estate market is much more vast than that. In fact, if you look at it, um, if you look at it numerically, um, if you can see this here, I'll try to blow it up for you. Um, the if you look at office as a you know as a percentage of real estate values today, it's actually much smaller than people realize. While it's still a healthy chunk, um, I don't think it represents or dominates the commercial real estate space as much as people realize. Um, in fact, today uh, uh, office space represents now that number is below twenty percent of real estate values across the country. Now, in the year 2000, that number was 40%. Um, so things have been changing for some time now. Um, and I know everyone's talking about, um, you know, working from home and how that's affected office, and it has. And I think it's important just to talk about it. I think everyone's talking about office, uh, so let's do that. Um, now, to be clear, um, as investors in real estate and our vehicle office is not what we're focused on and haven't been uh, for some time, uh, but it is something that I think is on the minds of everyone. So I think it's important to address it. Um, and, you know, maybe people have some questions on it later on. But, you know, first off, it's a relatively small percentage of the market. What most people don't know is that the office market has been shrinking now for some time. Um, as I mentioned, it was 40% of the overall commercial real estate market in 2000, and today that number is below 20. Um, when you think about it, uh, any company that occupies real estate, uh, their second highest expenditure at that firm uh, is usually rent. Uh, it's right behind what it costs to have employees. Um, and for years, uh, decades, quite, quite frankly, companies have been trying to reduce that expenditure. Um, they got a little help uh, through technology. Um, if you think back uh, a long time ago, uh, companies used to have floors uh, filled with filing cabinets to store all their records and data and so on and so forth. And then cubicles or offices were really kind of the same. You had to have filing cabinets and you had to have extra space in your office uh, just to store your data, basically. Well, through the evolution of technology, um, all that has been shrinking. In fact, the average square footage uh, per employee in this country in office spaces has been declining for now two decades. Um, so this is a problem that was already in existence before COVID. Um, and then COVID happened. 
Uh, so with, you know, and then COVID happened and everyone was forced into uh, figuring out how to work from home. Um, you know, so if you were to think back before, before, you know, before COVID, uh, if office occupancy was call it a hundred percent, which it wasn't, but let's for argument's sake, um, they were forced to go to zero, uh, because of COVID and the pandemic, uh, it creeped up to 30 and probably now it's in the 50 to 60% range. Um, nobody really knows what's going to happen with the work from home environment. I think everyone has a guess as do we, um, we do know this, we do know it's going, not going back to where it was. It's probably not going to be, remain where it is today either. In fact, if you look at companies like Invesco, for that matter, our home offices based in Atlanta, and um, you know, during COVID, once we came out of it, uh, everyone was required to have a flex schedule of call it two days or so. Then it went to three. It's now four, and there's talks of next year that um, uh, everyone will be fully back to work. Um, other companies have adapted the complete different way, where they'll never go back to an office space and they'll work entirely from home. Uh, but I think markets and economies um, and the health of those companies will dictate, um, you know, how that progresses going forward. But rest assured, I think that, um, you know, I think that uh, the office market will probably be impaired for some time, if not permanently. Um, in our view, we believe that the office market will probably go by way of the mall. Um, and before, you you know, you talk about the doom and gloom of the mall, um, you have to think about the fact that there have been some very successful malls uh, throughout the past decade. I happen to live in the Philadelphia area. Um, I live uh, very close to uh, a mall called the King of Prussia Mall. Uh, some of you may have heard of it. It's one of the five largest malls in the entire country. Uh, that mall has been thriving ever since it's been built. It continues to thrive today. Um, then if you go five to six miles away, there's another mall called the Granite Run Mall, and that mall is empty. Um, so you've had this bifurcation of winners and losers uh, in the mall space. And in fact, the losers, the ones, the malls that are going away, have helped strengthen the malls that are doing well and made them even stronger. Um, and now malls are not a particular focus of us, of ours either. But I think this is what everyone thinks about when they're thinking about commercial real estate. We do think the office market is an area that will um, go by way of the mall where you'll have clear uh, winners and losers. Uh, so I have some statistics when it comes to the US office market that I think are, are pretty compelling. You know, if you look at major cities across the United States, there's, uh, we call it six gateway markets or major cities. Um, they have been struggling, of course, in particular in the office space. Um, you know, the net migration in that area has been, in those areas have been declining. But in 2023, uh, the net migration actually went up about 17%. So you're starting to see this modest recovery, and we do think it's modest, but you are starting to see a recovery uh, nonetheless. Um, so for those of you that are so inclined, um, you know, there could be some interesting opportunities in the office world, although that's not something we're willing to risk uh, shareholder money with at the moment. Uh, but for those of you who are so inclined, it might be something you want to start paying attention to uh, because we do start to see some, you know, clear winners and losers. And where those winners are coming from is in the real high quality, newly constructed class A, you know, offices that are fairly recently built. A lot of companies, when they're negotiating rents, they realize they can get pretty new product in the office space for, you know, reasonable rents. Um, the problem is there's not a lot of high quality office space. There's a lot of old buildings out there, especially in major cities. Uh, so what we've noticed on our end is that real high quality office properties 
are commanding much, much higher rents than a traditional office, even, even if it's right next door or across the street. To the tune of asking rents are more than 50% higher in some cities for new class A office than it is for, you know, uh, existing office property. So something to think about. I think everyone's, you know, painted this doom and gloom for office. Uh, we're not big, big fans of it, uh, but it's not all bad. There are some, you know, attractive opportunities out there in the investing world that we do think uh, makes sense. Um, now, the, you know, there are other, um, as I mentioned, office is only 20% of the market. So what makes up the rest of it? Um, you know, there's, um, there's residential real estate. Now, when I say residential in commercial properties, that means units of call it, say, 100 or more, um, not your individual home. So it's multifamily apartments. Um, it's uh, manufactured housing. Um, it's single family homes for rent and those sorts of things. Um, they make up a big uh, part of the market as well. Um, there's retail. And I think, you know, we just talked about malls for a little bit. I think you can also talk about another section of retail that has actually done very, very well, which has been a surprise to many. And that's in the grocery anchored shopping center area. So grocery anchored shopping centers are, you know, something that we all use and we all need every day. Uh, grocery anchored shopping centers are ones that um, fulfill the service needs of a local resident base, uh, as opposed to in my area, the King of Prussia Mall, where people will drive, you know, all over the place uh, to, to go visit it. Um, you know, if you need a loaf of bread or just want a slice of pizza or have some dry cleaning done or go visit the dentist, um, grocery anchored shopping centers have become successful because they fulfill those service needs and they're less, um, uh, they have less, uh, they're, they're less susceptible to e-commerce invasion. In other words, it's hard to get your haircut online, uh, at least so far anyway, who knows what someone is out there inventing. Um, it's also hard, you know, to think about the work from home environment without talking about this, you know, this data center piece down here. Um, you know, the, the need for storage space and cloud storage, especially when you're talking about uh, things like AI, which is, uh, takes significant computing power. Um, companies need to store their data somewhere. Uh, you're seeing this emergence of data centers out there, which actually look like office buildings. You would not be able to tell the difference. Um, the, you know, they, they look just like office buildings. The difference is uh, they're filled with servers. Um, they require very expensive cooling equipment and things like that. Uh, so if, if, you were to, if we were to pick uh, an area that we're most excited about today, it would be the data center space because of everything that I just mentioned. Um, but not all offices are created equal. There are offices that look, you know, look and smell like offices, but there's something else going on inside there. And I'm gonna show um, a, actually one of our first purchases in our fund. Uh, this is a, um, this is a, we'll call it an office. This is a research and development facility called Willows. It's in Redmond, Washington. Um, this particular facility is, uh, is occupied 100% by Meta, formerly Facebook. When we bought the property, they were Facebook. Um, the difference is, is Facebook's uh, virtual reality or Oculus division is operates out of this facility. Um, they're, uh, they are 100% required to come into work every day because if you think about it logically, Meta doesn't want uh, kids that are fresh out of college uh, with trade secrets working out of their garages. Um, you know, so this is a, an area where people just have to come to work. Even throughout uh, COVID, they had pretty good representation in the space. But I think the interesting thing is 
when we bought this uh, property, uh, we actually bought it for uh, $37 million. Uh, Willows um, is in Redmond, as I mentioned, it's where all of the FANG stocks reside. So if you look at all of them, uh, Google, Amazon, et cetera, Facebook, um, they, uh, Meta, as Meta does, uh, they put $42 million of their own money uh, to actually retrofit the property the way they needed it retrofitted for. Um, so for example, 20% of this uh, facility are dark rooms where they test their equipment. Um, so this is a very specialized facility where lots of technological research goes on, um, where they have uh, requirements coming to work every day. Um, this isn't just your everyday ordinary, you know, office space. Um, so I thought, you know, another, um, another thing to think about uh, properties that might look like office space that aren't necessarily that um, would be think of life science, which is down here in the bottom right. Um, life sciences, think cancer research, uh, clinical studies. Uh, these offices require very heavy, very expensive, very specialized research equipment. Uh, that is simply something that cannot be done uh, at home. So again, less sort of e-commerce uh, evasion, invasion. Um, so I think maybe worth talking about now is because, you know, it hasn't, you know, I sit here and talk about, you know, the, the merits of investing in real estate. I think one that I sort of left out at the beginning uh, was, uh, and John Mark mentioned this in his introduction, is that real estate has proven over and over again to deliver excellent long-term returns um, that as long as it's held through cycles, um, it does so with lower volatility because we're not traded on a public exchange. It does so with lower correlation to the markets. Um, in other words, um, it doesn't really matter what happens in the market today. Uh, that won't affect um, us collecting rent on our property today at all. Um, it doesn't mean long-term macroeconomic indicators don't, uh, don't affect it, uh, but day in and day out, we're not correlated to what's going on in the stock market. We're not correlated to what's going on in the bond market. Uh, this is why institutions have used us for a long time. And I think you don't need to look much further than the past couple of years. Um, in 2022, the markets, as we all felt, uh, took it on the chin a little bit. We're down in the 20% range. Uh, bonds, for the first time in a long time, really had a tough year, and we're down in the low double digits. Um, not something we would have expected. The traditional 60-40 portfolio really had a tough time in 2022. Our portfolio and other real estate investments were up that year about 9%. Um, and what that helps do, it helps cushion the blow. It helps um, reduce your overall volatility. It helps you lose less in down markets, uh, which is important. Uh, the math of loss is a real thing. Um, and when you reduce the amount that you go down in a given year, that really that really does matter. And then you flash forward to last year, and last year was not all peaches and roses. Uh, we have been going through a cycle in real estate, mostly because the Federal Reserve uh, rates went from zero to 5%, uh, seemingly overnight. Uh, rising rates affect borrowing costs. Uh, and it affects real estate values. Uh, there is a little bit of a lag effect where we have, we're gonna come in uh, at a negative, uh, call it four and a half percent total return for the year, which is certainly no fun to talk about. But at the same time, the markets recovered. The markets were up just a little shy of 25% last year. So you can kind of see that, that seesaw kind of balancing act and uh, how having both in your portfolio actually makes sense, or all three, I should say, stocks, bonds, and real estate uh, do make sense. Um, so when you look at our year last year, uh, we spent the entire year, given the fact that the Fed had raised rates so much, we basically spent the entire year sort of fortifying our balance sheet. 
Um, we wanted to, you know, incorporate some strategic execution within our own portfolio. And then we wanted to come out of 2023 um, in, in a position of strength, which we like to think that we are right now. We're 95% occupied across the portfolio. Um, but really, it has to do with our, our portfolio construction. And I'm just going to go through this because this is what we're sort of most excited about, most excited about. Um, you know, as we go forward here. Um, number one is what we call our growth bucket. Um, these are, oops, that would help if you guys can see it. Uh, number one is what we would call our, our growth bucket. Um, these are property types where we have the strongest long-term convictions um, because of the e-commerce invasion. I think uh, industrial warehouses, uh, distribution centers and facilities like the one you see on the left here. Um, by the way, for those of you in Ohio, this is in on Angler Road in Columbus, Ohio. Um, it's occupied by PepsiCo and uh, and Jenny's Ice Cream, I believe, is the tenant there. Um, these are assets that we started to uh, work. I guess it's safe to say we are all trying to get as close to all of you as possible. The last mile of distribution for products uh, distributed by any company is by far the most expensive um, and as close as you can get to the consumer through facilities like this, the better off you are and the cheaper it is for the companies delivering uh, those products. When it comes to the central part of the country, um, like in Columbus and the Cleveland areas, uh, we have a lot of companies that in an effort to reduce their expense. Uh, were expanding their presence there. So companies like Frito-Lay, companies like uh, Amazon and Google and, and so many others are starting to have a presence in the central part of the country because, frankly, real estate was cheaper than it has been in the coastal markets. <clears throat> but nonetheless, there's a long-term trend um, in that space that uh, e-commerce is here to stay. Uh, people will be buying goods online uh, now and forever. Uh, so to have access to these types of investments uh, really makes an awful lot of sense. Um, another area where we feel uh, high conviction that would fit in that growth bucket, <coughs> excuse me, would be the multifamily area. Um, this fits into a broader theme of uh, massive uh, housing shortage that we have in this country. Um, we also have a massive affordability problem when it comes to housing in this country. Uh, it's a real problem. Uh, so having exposure to uh, forms of living, which would include multifamily apartments, it would include manufactured housing. Um, it would include uh, single family homes for rent, um, you know, affordable housing and the like. Um, you know, I think it's wise to consider that as a growth theme. But because of um, interest rates and because of sort of a dislocated market, pricing in those markets has uh, pulled back a little bit. Um, and we're going to be taking the opportunity. We have much lower exposure to, to our growth bucket for that reason. Um, but our plan is, as prices have pulled back, to add to those growth areas, um, you know, in the in the coming years. Um, and in order to strengthen our balance sheet and to strengthen our portfolio and make it more durable, that moves us to that middle bucket. We've been spending a lot of time um, on what we call our demographic driven demand bucket. These are property types that are much less correlated to our economy. Um, the most obvious example I can give you is healthcare. Um, healthcare is, um, you know, it's our largest spend of our economy. Uh, it's 20% of our gross domestic product here in the United States. It's been growing at about a 5% clip every year for the last 20. Uh, we don't see that changing anytime soon. I mean, the average, you know, the 65 uh, year old and older 
cohort in this country has been growing rapidly, much faster than the younger cohort, and healthcare expenditures are growing as a result of that. And regardless of what's happening in the market and in the economy, uh, people still need access to healthcare. Um, our first purchase in our fund, for example, back in 2020, was a 20 building medical office portfolio that was scattered across the Sunbelt markets. And our whole thought process is what I had just mentioned, um, but also we wanted to make sure that these were more higher acuity type services. So think uh, cancer screenings and uh, shoulder replacements and hip replacements and things like that. Uh, many things you can't uh, actually get done online. Um, other property types that fit that bill would be, for example, self-storage, uh, where I hate to be uh, uh, rude on the call, but self-storage, we're essentially capitalizing on the laziness of people. Uh, people tend to fill a big box uh, with a bunch of stuff, and they uh, tend not to take it out uh, until they absolutely need to. Um, the average stay in a self-storage facility is anywhere from four to six years. Uh, compare that to a multifamily apartment where it's anywhere from one to three. Um, so they they are much less correlated to the broader economy as well. And then this last one, which you see on the screen here, we have uh, two very large student housing facilities. Uh, one that you see pictured here is at Arizona State University. Um, and we have another one in, in the Atlanta market at Kennesaw State University, um, where you know you have this phenomenon here, and I'll just turn back to COVID, where uh, obviously COVID was a uh, the whole economy shut down. And uh, I happen to be a person, a dad, that had two boys attending college during COVID while it was going on. And um, even though they were not attending classes, a funny thing, I found myself still writing checks uh, to pay for their rent uh, at their student housing uh, facilities in both of the universities that they went to. Um, parents and families, uh, save for years uh, to cover the costs and expenses of student housing. Uh, this tends to be a very resilient um, property type, and uh, that has really borne out. Even last year, when things had gotten pretty difficult uh, in the market, the economy through interest rates, we still had double-digit rent growth in both of our uh, student housing facilities. And then this last part is probably part of a longer conversation but one worth having at least for a short period of time today, which is, um, you know, the environment has changed and, you know, commercial real estate business happens every single day in our market. Uh, most people, when they think about commercial real estate, they usually think about a local person, a developer that's building a small, maybe multifamily apartment or something like that. Uh, most people are not thinking about large institutional investors that are investing on behalf of large institutions like um, like endowments and sovereign wealth funds and insurance companies. Um, all of these companies uh, operate in real estate, uh, just like your local developer does or your local store owner, but they do it in an investment capacity. And in doing so, they need uh, financing. Um, the problem is, is that uh, you look at what's happened in the market, you look at what's happened with respect to real estate, particularly around office, and the largest single source of capital for these types of investors have been banks, of course. Um, those banks, because of stress this past year, have completely pulled away from the market. It's paved the way for companies like ours, large companies, to actually act as the bank and actually act as a lender um, in this space. Um, and it's become a really uh, real ballast to our overall portfolio and has helped us weather a pretty significant storm in the real estate space this year. Um, so coming out of, um, uh, of the market this year, 
we feel like we get we get an all we get a, I guess it's safe to say we get quite a few questions. Um, you know, one is around interest rates. I'll just say this. Um, you know, uh, I understand you had, I heard John Mark's comments in the beginning. It sounds like you had a market update. I think everyone's got their opinions on real estate. We have ours. Um, we're rarely right. Uh, maybe we're close. We were trending in the right direction. But if you were to ask us, um, we do feel like rates have stabilized. We actually feel like they should be coming down and they'll probably be coming down towards the latter part of this year. Our guess, and I'll stress the word guess, um, probably in the one and a half percent range off the Fed funds rate. This year, that would be good for real estate. It would be good for borrowing costs. Um, so keep your eye on that. It's a real big driver of how the uh, real estate market is is um, going to go. Um, if you look at the federal federal funds rate, the Federal Reserve, they have a long term goal of two and a half percent on the federal funds rate. Um, we're a long way from that. Uh, we don't think we're going to get there anytime soon. So we do think we're kind of going to be in this range for the foreseeable future. Um, on one hand, that impacts our borrowing costs. On the other hand, it's good for investors because it generates a, you know, a significant income stream north of zero, which is where it was for so long. Um, you know, real estate will uh, help participate. So then the question is, will the Fed be able to pull off sort of this soft landing uh, or, or are we going into a recession? Uh, I will say this, you probably heard it ad nauseum. It's probably the most advertised recession I've ever heard of in my life uh, that hasn't happened yet. Uh, we're probably going to see maybe a mild recession here in the early part of the year, uh, but we think that that has done a good job in weathering the storm. Um, you know, so, um, you know, all these things are, you know, signals for growth, which could mean, you know, a, a good path ahead for um, for real estate after a pretty tough uh, 2023. In terms of, you know, sectors we're looking at, you know, I talked about, you know, some of the ones that we're most excited about uh, that we own, which are, of course, you know, industrial centers, multifamily apartments, student housing, healthcare. Um, I did mention data centers. You know, these are not something that we own currently, uh, but we are looking and we that's a big driver for us. So we're looking uh, frantically to add that to our portfolio here. Um, but we do think any new dollar that comes in the door today, uh, at least for the next couple of months, will probably go in our debt sleeve as we're getting sort of outsized cash flows on basically becoming a lender for uh, real estate investments for other companies. So, um, you know, that's a lot of me talking about real estate, uh, which is something I do, you know, every single day. Um, but I think it's probably important to focus on what's um, what's on, you know, everybody else's mind that's on this call. Uh, so John, Mark or Amanda, maybe it might be a good time to insert some questions if there are any, or if you happen to have any, or if I can elaborate on anything I spoke about or didn't, I'm happy to do that as well. Um, I always look at these calls like this is your time more than it is mine. So, um, you know, if there are questions, maybe you can fire away. Yeah, we yeah, do. We, we had we some pre-submitted questions. But if you would like to ask a question, go ahead and uh, put it in the chat. And we'll we'll try to get to it if we have the time. But Pat, a few questions that were submitted beforehand. Um, if I'm a real estate investor today, and let's say I have a few single-family houses that I you know rented out over a period of time, and the 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 double T's or sometimes the triple T's of tenants, toilets, and you know <laughs> other issues that come up are, are waiting on me. Um, yeah, termites. That's right. <laughs> I always forget that last one, but that's termites. Thank you. Um, the uh, um, so if I'm starting to get 
you know, or maybe maybe we could say the last one is taxes because I've I've depreciated that property down to zero. Uh, so they're no longer tax efficient like they were the last 27 and a half years. Right. Um, what are some options I have to take those fees off my table, the tenants, the toilets, the but but uh-huh. avoid paying the tax man in doing that? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, you know, um, the, the thing about real estate, it's gotten very inventive over the years, and there is a tax law. It's been around for about 100 years. Um, it's IRS code 1031. Most people know about these as 1031 exchanges. Now, at the, at the core of it, a 1031 exchange allows you to sell your property or properties, plural. And if you buy another property or properties, within a certain window of time, you forego, you know, all of the taxes owed on the sale and it just rolls over into the new investment. Um, And you can keep doing that over and over and over again. Um, There are companies like ours um, that uh, have put together programs, 1031 programs where, uh, because if I can back up for a second, one of the challenges with um, you know, doing a traditional 1031, in other words, where you're selling your own properties and then buying a completely different property yourself. Um, you still have those three T's that you'd mentioned, um, and uh, you still have to deal with the headaches of being a property manager and dealing with, um, you know, tenants, toilets, toilets and termites. Um, these programs that have been created over the course of the past couple of years allow you to sell your appreciated uh, real estate. Um, convert it into a program called its 1031 slash 721 program, uh, where you're actually buying an investment vehicle that invests in real estate. It's fairly complex. It's probably a, a, a topic for a different call at some point, but just know if anyone is on the call that has that particular problem, there are solutions for you. They are good ones and they do help alleviate uh, the tax burden that you have and also help you be a passive investor in real estate as opposed to an active one. Um, I would suggest uh, you call your financial advisor to talk about the options that are out there. But the good news is there are options to help alleviate those burdens. Okay, yeah, perfect. Uh, Another question uh, we had pre-submitted. If I'm sitting on the sidelines right now, in terms of buying property, whether it's, you know, residential or some sort of investment, uh, because prices and rates are high, um, we're, pro- we're starting to see the rate side come down. Um, if you listen to Dave Ramsey, Dave Ramsey will say very uh, few times do you get deflation in terms of, of real estate, meaning, yes, the growth will slow down as opposed to its historical precedence. But you're not going to see prices come negatively down. Uh, what are your thoughts on on somebody that's holding out for prices to come down on the real estate side? Yeah, uh, that's a great question. It's something we get uh, a fair amount, um, you know, trying to time it. Um, you know, as investors with Invesco, we are very, very long-term investors. We tend to think in 10 to 15-year increments. Um, and we tend to look at, you know, long-term themes um of where things are going to be maybe a a decade from now we try to caution people from trying to time it because no one ever really does know uh, what's going to happen with the market the economy rates and you know other factors um that said uh we you know real estate has cycles and uh, we've been going through one over the past year um and prices have pulled back and um if we're right and others are right 
as rates come down, it could be an opportunistic time to start at least thinking about, if not actually doing it, um, investing in real estate. Now, I would encourage everyone to think over the long term um, and think in terms of, you know, at least five to seven years. Uh, it's not required, but if you want the full benefit of real estate throughout the cycle, that should be, you know, maybe the time frame that's in your mind. Um, that said, uh, given what we've gone through in the past, uh, you know, a couple of years or so, um, it's or, or last year at the very least, it's probably at least a good time to have your eye on it. Yeah, perfect. Um, what about a um, question from one of our clients down in the Hilton Head Savannah area, and they say that that's where they live. Uh, they're they're starting to see new home developments down in that area or part of the country. Um, what they're calling value yeah. homes, homes that are priced in the three hundred thousand um, dollar or rental home communities, um, and their their argument is, you know, the the new generation just doesn't believe in the American dream of of home ownership um, because they don't want the maintenance that comes with it. They don't want tied to one property, you know, a whole host of reasons. What are you guys seeing across the country in regards to residential real estate? Um, and they specifically want to know, do you think that'll have an effect on the, the the gradual move up that happens in housing? Meaning I start at 300, then I go to half a million, then I go to 800,000, and I'm just, you know, over my life cycle, I continue to get a larger house. But if I'm on the end of trying to sell that $800,000 house, if that cycle doesn't start, then I, I could be in trouble. What are you guys seeing again? On yeah, the it's an interesting, uh, it's, a, it's both a problem and probably a little bit of an opportunity. Um, you're, you know, because they're right, the data is correct. I mean, we have uh, a massive uh, shortage of homes in this country. If you just look in the here and now, you know, we look at my side of the business, we look a lot at population growth. And even here in the United States, um, you know, the last year we've added 2 million people to our economy, um, which puts pressure on, um, you know, on uh, schools and food and healthcare and, and of course, housing. Um, well, because interest rates are where they are and because material costs are where they are, um, it's gotten very expensive. And they're also, you know, the, the regulatory requirements for building have gotten a little stricter. Um, so new supply of homes coming to the market um, is fairly low and it's not keeping up with even population growth. Um, then you throw in the fact that you have this entire next generation, we'll call them millennial generation and younger, where their balance sheets are pretty challenged. And they're mostly challenged because of student debt, and perhaps some other factors, some of the things that I mentioned, higher costs of homes um, and, you know, higher borrowing costs, et cetera, et cetera. But I think what people leave out is they are young um, and there's always been and historically, there's always been some version of uh, more affordable housing that has emerged. In fact, you're talking to someone myself in the Philadelphia area. Uh, my family's first home was a Levitt home. I don't know if that means anything to people on this call, but um, uh, Mark Levitt, I think it was Mark. The Art or Mark uh, Levitt uh, started to build uh, affordable homes that uh, were all looked the same. Uh, I think my parents got their house in the early 60s, somewhere around the $11,000 range, something like that. Um, uh, but as they grow up and households start to form and they have children, they eventually will want to move to good school districts um, and have a yard and a fence where they can have pets and things like that. Um, and that will not go away. Um, but that problem also persists on larger homes as well. So, you know, the larger homes 
um, uh, are not being built, quite frankly, uh, anywhere near the pace as they have been over the many, many years uh, that we've seen over the course of the past, you know, several years. So if things were normal, if things, if we were keeping up with supply, um, which we are not, but if we were, I would say the environment uh, we've been in would be a recipe for falling home prices, uh, but we're not in that environment. We have a massive shortage of homes at all levels. Um, and which we do think that that'll at least stabilize homes at the top end. Perhaps the growth rate of those homes might be muted to some degree, um, but uh, we still think there's plenty of room to go for those homes as well. Uh, you do have to be on the lookout of what's being built in your in your area um, that could affect prices. So everything is local. It depends on your current market. But just generally speaking, we think there's plenty of room to go over the long term for single family homes of any size. If, so if we've if we've been habitually underbuilding pretty much yeah. since 08, and it, it it doesn't seem to have corrected itself over that period of time, what is the right fix to you know get that change? I mean, you're you're probably not going to see population growth stop. You're probably not going to see immigration stop. So is it is it regulation where you you incentivize building? Uh, does the government have to get involved to fix this problem or, or how does it? Yeah, get how that problem gets fixed. Uh, there's a couple of things and yes, that is one answer. We think the government has to get involved in some way, or at least release some of the restrictions that they put in place. Um, currently, perhaps some uh, incentives for builders or perhaps some tax abatements, uh, things like that. We think that would um, certainly help matters. Um, the other part would be just a traditional uh, cycle of economics where, you know, if interest rates were to come down and material costs were to come down, they've been uh, abnormally high. Um, if that were to come down, that would help alleviate the pressure. So it's really kind of all of the above, um, but uh, government uh, intervention would probably help mostly around the regulatory environment. Yeah. And there's a, a question from um, Mike in the chat. Um, could you explain the part of the benefit of a private real estate investment is um, the not need to have to deal with the normal supply demand dynamics that would, you know, we, we tell clients, you know, 53% of the days are positive in the market, 47% of the days are negative. Yet, 80% of the years are positive, which tells you there's a lot of days that don't matter, yet you got to live right. through them still. The way I think about private real estate is, or the way I think about my own personal home, because I don't get a statement on it every day, or it's not being priced in front of me every day by CNBC, it's, I don't freak out about it. It's value fluctuation. Can you describe the valuation of a private real estate investment and for Mike explain how one, if they were ready to liquidate, uh, they're ready to use the money, you know, five, ten years down the road, how they would go about do that in a private real estate as opposed to VNQ where I'm just going to go type in sell on my on my trade terminal and, and it's going to be yeah. liquid and ready to yeah, go. Yeah, it, it's another interesting phenomenon. But, you know, the, the public market, um, it's real estate stocks. Um, it's, you know, of the $20 trillion market that I had mentioned before, real estate stocks only represent about 1 trillion of that 20. Most real estate in the United States is privately owned through, um, individuals, uh, corporations, pensions, endowments and the like. Uh, so you're not really getting a broad representation. If you're investing in real estate stocks or funds necessarily, that's another thing besides 
the volatility component. Uh, when it comes to the volatility component and the pricing, it's on one hand, if you own a real estate stock or a real estate investment, you do get affirmation because it is priced, you know, in some cases every second or at least every day. Um, but you're relying on the uh, investor's motivation for that. You're relying on the investor sentiment around what they feel about the, real, the overall real estate market. Uh, we invest in actual property, uh, which means what matters to us is our tenants, the rent we're able to collect from our tenants and the value of that overall property. And that changes from market to market. Um, you might have a warehouse in uh, Columbus um, or Cleveland uh, that has that's completely full and has good metrics and is filled with a good company. But then you have another warehouse um, in a really good market, maybe you know the ports of New Jersey outside of New York, but it's empty. Um, they're both warehouses. They both, you know, are in the real estate market, but they have entirely two different metrics. So how, you know, at least in our case, I can speak for us, John Mark, and, and whoever asked the question, um, you know, we're, there are certain, given the fact that our investments are made available to individuals, uh, we are beholden to certain regulatory requirements. And a big one of those is pricing. Um, so we are required uh, in our case to uh, hire a third party appraisal firm uh, at arm's length, so not affiliated with our company whatsoever. Um, and it's that appraiser that values our property. Um, they in Every property we own gets valued uh, once a quarter. Um, so how it works is, you know, uh, a, a quarter of our portfolio is getting valued every quarter. Um, and those numbers and what they find out is just rolled into the math of our, our pricing and we price on a monthly basis. Um, so then the question is, well, how do we know if they're right? Um, because, you know, all, all it is is just an appraisal. You're not dealing with actual transactions here because uh, we're not actually selling the property. It's just being valued. Uh, but generally speaking, um, the appraisals uh, that we've been given we've been able to execute deals plus or minus 2% of their most recent appraisal. It gives you an idea that these large appraisal firms have a pretty good handle on the real estate uh, market in general. Um, but given the fact that the frequency of the appraisals and the fact we're able to tie it to actual transaction, whether it's within our portfolio or within our organization or just across that market, uh, it gives us affirmation that uh, those appraisals are pretty close to accurate, if not fully accurate, uh, compared to the market. You can invest in a stock today um, and it could be worth 5% less tomorrow for no reason. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in real estate stocks, people look at it, they say they address real estate stocks in terms of how they trade relative to net asset value, uh, whether it's at a discount or a premium. Our, our portfolio trades at net asset value. Uh, and that's a big difference there. So it's actually, as the, it might sound mysterious, but it's actually more predictable, I think, than the public markets. Yeah, perfect. And one last question, um, Pat, before we wrap this up, because we're nearly at the hour. Um, opportunity zones for uh, tax incentives. Do, how do you guys feel about investing in opportunity zones? Do you have any mechanisms to do that? Uh, does does INREIT do that? And and uh, just kind of basic thoughts on that for sure. When it comes here. to opportunity zone funds, so full disclosure, it's not something we've engaged in here at Invesco. Um, not that it's a bad thing. We just uh, made a business decision not to do it. Um, opportunity zones offer a little bit more latitude, so you can actually exchange uh, things like highly appreciated stock. Um, you can exchange real estate and other things. Um, 
the in our case we utilize a 1031 vehicle which is exclusively for real estate um, the big difference is is the type of real estate that's owned in the investment so opportunity zone funds are by and large what we would call opportunistic investments in other words um, they're mostly development deals um, now development deals oftentimes work out but sometimes they don't um, and you know that potential volatility is what kind of steered us clear of um, that that market, whereas 1031 exchanges, we actually it's a com complicated conversation, but we actually pull um, this you know stabilized A quality real estate from a portfolio to act as the uh, vehicle under which 1031 exchanges are done. These are paying out income currently, as opposed to opportunity zone funds that have a tough time doing that. So if you if you're looking into an exchange and current income is a real need, 1031 is the way to go. And we also utilize more stabilized real estate as opposed to, um, you know, it being uh, new construction in a particular, you know, area of the of the world. There is some foggy, unclear lines as to what represents an opportunity zone. Uh, I think this is one of those things that uh, had all the right reasons for being built, uh, but then they left it in the hands of local politicians to decide what exactly what an opportunity zone fund is supposed to be. Um, like, for example, the entire city of Seattle has been deemed an opportunity zone fund. And that sort of, um, you know, negates the point of opportunity zone funds in the first place. Um, I think it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm negative on opportunity zone funds. I'm not. I think they are a good solution for uh, a lot of those other things uh, like highly appreciated stock and other you know, investments you might have. Uh, but for a straight real estate, uh, you know, exchange involved around involved with taxes, 1031s are probably the way to go. Yeah, perfect. Well, Pat, thank you uh, for joining us today. You're you're a busy man, and we appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about real estate and the market, and just give us your thoughts. So, um, if anyone has specific questions relative to their situation, and and if real estate's a good fit, certainly talk to your financial advisor, um, and and they'd be happy to to investigate that with you. But Pat, it's great to spend some time with you. Thanks so much. You are. A friend and a partner to Whitaker Myers. Um, thank thank you, you John Mark. Thanks for everyone uh, for listening and um, happy to oblige. If there's more questions or things that uh, we forgot to talk about today and you need to revisit that with your advisor, um, please let them know. I'm sure they know how to reach me and uh, I'm happy to have a conversation. But thanks for having me. Really appreciate being here. Yep, thank you. And we'll look forward to seeing you on our next. Uh, monthly webinar, which will be all around uh, part of the stock side of your portfolio. We're going to be digging deep into uh, stocks that have what we call wide moats. So we'll we'll send the information out for that in our weekly newsletter. You can look at uh, that to get signed up for that that next webinar we're going to do. So thanks so much. We'll see you so next week or next month. <laughs>